right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Behind the Truth. No, I'm just kidding. Wouldn't that be crazy if I had Duke you into like coming into the room? <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> Behind the Truth. Uh, hi, everybody. This is uh, Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson. Uh, in case you're tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things marketing, ideas, innovation, creativity, people who are inventing and reinventing the way we do things in the world. Uh, and so today we continue the tradition. Uh, first off, I want to introduce my special guest, bearded co-host, uh, Eric Espinosa. How was that? Was it? Bueno, bueno. <laughs> do you even speak Spanish? Poquito. Okay. You can stop if you, yeah, you don't. That's, that's maybe Very kind of poquito. <laughs> um, so th- tell us a little bit about yourself, Eric. Uh, well, um, I do a couple of things, uh, mainly starting a nonprofit at, at the time being and also producing uh, TED conferences in Southern California. Very good. Um, which one do you like better? It's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> uh, probably with it's. I guess it's kind of the transitioning from both. Where if I'm getting stressed on one, I move on to the other, and it's vice versa. No, that's good. Yeah, it's maybe so. It's like having two chicks. You just you yeah. Know, one of them's bugging you. Go. You, just t- you don't even need an apartment. <laughs> yeah. Um, and across from me, the man of the hour. Hello, Matt Mason. How are you? How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. Your hair's redder than I thought it was going to be. People don't notice. It takes my fiance didn't notice I had red hair till our third date. Yeah, does she, does she wear glasses or anything? She she does now. She, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. You're like you need a prescription. <laughs> um, so give us the one hundred and one on who Matt Mason is. You and I talked a little while ago, mm-hmm. but uh, would love to just kind of get the you know sort of. The, the elevator version of the resume, and then we'll... we'll... Uh, yeah, okay, so my name's Matt Mason. I grew up in London. I was a pirate radio DJ as a kid. I was involved in the early grime and dubstep scene and, and was fascinated with the idea of kind of great areas in the economy and culture and different business models. Um, I founded a music magazine called Rewind, which became the largest music magazine in the UK. I wrote a book called The Pirate's Dilemma about these sort of gray areas in the economy and how to exploit them. Uh, most recently, I headed up marketing, was also chief content officer at a company called BitTorrent in San Francisco um, that was obviously synonymous with piracy. Um, we kind of helped change perception of that a little bit and built a platform there called Bundle, which has about 30,000 publishers, including all of the major record labels and several of the major studios using BitTorrent technology to publish stuff and sell stuff legally to the 170 million people that use BitTorrent. 170 million? Mm-hmm. Like it, and it, I'm assuming that's global, but like, um, uh, I mean that's that's a pretty big, a pretty big number. <laughs> it's a big number, yeah. It's yeah. up there with sort of you know the the Twitters and LinkedIn's of the world. So it was it was n- not a small audience, and to, to me it looked like the largest pirate radio station in the world. And I knew there was value there for for content creators, and that's where kind of my my heart is 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 trying to help creators. Um, make the best of the internet and and new opportunities to get their work out there and and BitTorrent was definitely that um, and and now I'm sort of thinking about what's next yeah there's a there's a bunch of other interesting things um, so you were kind of birthed in piracy <laughs> yeah uh, I mean creatively professionally um, kind of walk us through like that first step into pirate radio or like yeah. you know did you get invited to some underground club and it was like you had to have it, a secret password? No, it was more just, it was kind of like, like as a young kid, like late 80s, early 90s in the UK, I was too young to like carry a box of records or be DJing or anything like that. But like some of my friends, older brothers and sisters were involved in pirate radio. So we'd listen to them on the radio. And at first I was just fascinated that I could, I could text like, or phone, it was phone then and just lit and get my name read out. 
and how that sort of wow I can I can be part of this big media thing that's I grew up thinking radio is not for me or it's hard right. to get on the radio and then that sort of idea when I when I started DJing it was like hang on a sec myself and 300 other kids in London if we all play the same record for a month that record will get signed and it might go to the top of the charts and I saw that happen I saw a friend of mine do that when he was 15 years old and I was just like this is this is really cool the music industry is a really cool place to be and I was really excited and um, studied economics and was really excited to go out and get a job in the music industry which is what I did I started at Warner Music right. got an internship straight out of college and after three months of Warner Music I was just like this is horrible. This is the what. This is the opposite of everything that I thought. Was what was so about horrible it. about it? Like, what, what you know? Just that, like you could. Is the machine like cranking out records? And it, you know, it, it, what, I don't know. Like, just was it? What, what was it? What was so, it? So at the time, so this was 1999. So Napster had just hit. Hardly anyone in the building had a computer at their desk, and my job as the intern. They would they would give me a list of bands, and I would go into the press room, and every there's all these files, and and in the press room. You've got photos of, of the bands, their press releases, all, the, all their stuff, their press pack. And I would be given a list. And it's like, these are the guys who you need to chuck out all their stuff because we're not releasing any of their records. Right. So every, I felt like the Grim Reaper. I'd walk around this press room <laughs> throwing all these people's dreams in the dustbin. And like these guys have been signed, their names, their publishing, everything had gone to this label right. that now decided, you know what? It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Never mind. And that, to me, that was the opposite of being able to just put a record out and sell it in the shops independently and, and get it on pirate radio and do all this stuff. So at night, I was part of this music scene where I felt like this is really cool. This works. Right. And in the daytime, I was like, this is this is the worst bureaucracy. There's so much. There's so many reasons why you're not going to make it here. This doesn't feel like the kind of the kind of organization that were you a, like were you a vocal intern like did you say anything about what you felt about what was wrong at the culture i mean obviously you saw it and then it went on your own path later mm. but at that point in time were you were you at all vocal about no I, I think i was sort of too young and i was like just sort of I, it had to percolate like this is me thinking back like 15 years now and like, that's what was wrong that's why i didn't like it but i knew at the time i was like this just feels weird i don't like this i don't think this is I don't want to be part of this, right? Sort of thing. Well, it's also interesting because you, you you look at sort of the millennial generation or the mm -hmm. Gen Z now, who's probably having internships or coming up, and companies lean on them a lot more than you know you getting caught like putting records in bins and yeah, <laughs> like oh, filing sure. stuff away. It's like, what's cool? What's hot? Like, please tell me. Um, you know, have have you seen the youth become more empowered over time? Like in the in the business? Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking as you said that. Uh, now that you mention it. Um, I did get a record signed while I was there. Um, I, I brought in a record, and the, one of the NL guys listened to it, and he ended up signing. Um, it was an act from a grime crew called So Solid that, that were huge in, in London. Um, and then another thing I did there, I found an old key. Good job, by the way, on that internship. Oh, thank you. The, the, the best thing that came out of that for me was <laughs> I found I found a, key, a dat tape of an old Keith Sweat a cappella in, a, in an office that they asked me to clean out. Eric, do you even know who Keith Sweat is? No, you got to find out. You, you, you got those two. You got those two girls. So you just you, you need some key sweat. Need some key sweat. Need some, okay. Everybody needs <laughs> some key mood. sweat. Um, but I found this acapella, so I I took it home and I made a garage tune out of it and I bootlegged it and I put it in the record shops and I sold like a thousand copies and I felt really guilty. So I went back to the label and I said to the A and R guy, the one who liked me, who'd signed this other record. I said, look, I'm really sorry, but I kind of stole this 
this Keith Sweat record and and sold some and they're playing it on they were playing it on this big the biggest station in London and he's like that's really cool if you sell 5,000 let me know and we'll, we'll sign it and I didn't sell 5,000 but that was I was like there was a few weeks there I wasn't sleeping <laughs> like they're, they're going to break your kneecaps <laughs> <laughs> um, so what you wrote this book mm-hmm. um, a few years ago right yeah like 2008 so um, the pirates what is the pirates dilemma not as the mm-hmm. book and but the phrase like or you know what what does it translate to so it's a play on um, a theory in economics called the prisoner's dilemma and the prisoner's dilemma is 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 um, should you should you try and work within a system or should you should you not work within a system to, to really kind of sort of ha- like talk over it, but the the pirate the dilemma with piracy is if piracy is happening in your world somehow, should you fight pirates or should you copy them? Should you try and work with them? Um, and, and this sounds kind of obvious now. In two thousand eight, it was less so, but I just made the case that if piracy is happening and nothing you can do will stamp it out because people still like the piracy the the pirate version of whatever it is there's value there there's a real market you should try and legitimize it right um and, and that's sort of been something that you know i think the entertainment industry started to get its head around uh at least a little bit well one thing i liked even when i you know was looking at that was sort of your intro video that made all these parallels to mm-hmm. things that you know we uh, we still kind of shun today but you're like, oh, if that didn't happen, then this wouldn't have happened, right? Like these hacks, which is basically what yeah. you know in in your world of piracy are. It's like you're hacking mm-hmm. a different way to to reach an audience. Um, I don't know. Can you, can you walk us through a few of the examples that you mentioned um, as far as what you know mm-hmm. where it's where uh, piracy has been practical and and useful? Yeah, I mean, if you go back to so if you go back to the original kind of music pirate. Um, a guy called Thomas Edison who figured out a way to transfer a live recording onto a plastic disc and replace the need for having a band there doing a live show. You could play that disc on a machine called a record player and when he did this, musicians looked at what he did and like, this is crazy, this is going to ruin, this is going to completely ruin our industry. There's no more revenue from from music. And nobody saw the record industry coming. It took it took Edison and the, the musicians a while to figure out Edison Records, the first label, royalties, all of that stuff. But that grew out of something that was he was very much considered a pirate. Like that word was used to describe him by musicians at the time. Edison went on to invent filmmaking technology, um, and he, he wanted to charge a license fee to anybody who wanted to to use it. It was kind of an enterprise business model, was how he was thinking about it. Right. And filmmakers did not like that idea. They wanted to make films with this technology because it was the best in the business, but the fee was too high for a lot of people. So a bunch of filmmakers fled New York and f- went to the then still very wild west coast of America uh, to a, a town not far from the, the border with Mexico, and they set up this community of pirate filmmakers that would illegally make films without paying the licensing fees. And if Edison sent his lawyers out from New York, um, they would get word and they would all head over to Mexico and, and lay low until the lawyers had gone gone back east. Wow. So that that town of pirate filmmakers was called Hollywood, and one of the <laughs> ringleaders was a guy named William Fox. Oh. Yeah. So it, it it comes full circle, and it's just, I mean, now we're seeing the same thing with, you know, th- I look at things like Uber. Like, Uber's in court for, you know, are, are these people employees? Are they contractors? Right. This is a gray area. This is unknown territory. And, and whenever we get there, the natural reaction is fight. 
And you know, not often for good. But why reason. is it? Like I don't know. Like, did you, uh, uh, have you dived into sort of the psychology of the fear of the new thing or the thing that? I mean, it's su- yeah, it's super primal. It's just it's our natural reaction is this is new, this is weird, this could potentially upend the existing business model. Um, we need to either tread carefully or completely shut this down. That's, right. That's sort of always the first reaction, and you need to prove to people. If you're a proponent of that new business model, that there is there is revenue for them, or is an opportunity for them, or it's not going to completely harm their business model, and, and sometimes you can't prove that because a new thing will upend the old thing. Right. It's it's kind of funny. It, it's just re- reminding me of an article I read a while ago about Netflix, mm-hmm. and I think even Amazon that they're actually going to platforms like BitTorrent and kind of seeing almost like it's what's trending. You know how many mm-hmm. seeds are being, and from there uh, purchasing rights to tv shows or movies so that it's yeah. part of their platform yeah there's there's a ton of good data there and and netflix has been doing that and the thing that we were really trying to help filmmakers do we help we work with a lot of documentary filmmakers and w- what we would what we would do is our whole thing at bits are and something that i'm sort of personally very invested in is the idea that on the internet and this you know this is the internet this is the internet of things this is every possible conceivable um iteration of the internet the idea of the internet is it was supposed to empower the end user, and that means that your data should be long, belong to you as the end user. So Netflix can go and look at the trackers on the Pirate Bay and see what's popular, and they can make a decision, and they can buy something. But if you're a filmmaker and you sell your stuff to Netflix, it's actually really hard to get good data back from Netflix on who your audience is, like was your film popular, where right. do people watch it, and don't even think about you know having any kind of, you're not going to get a CSV file full of email addresses telling you who those people are, so you can tell them about your next film. So it's it's hard for people to build sustainable businesses without data. A BitTorrent, we, because it was all peer-to-peer, actually the filmmaker, if they published the bundle on BitTorrent themselves, they would get more data on that film than we at BitTorrent HQ would get. And we'd have to ask them to share it with us. And we built that by design because, I mean, I think this is going to be a a much bigger issue on the internet. Like if you think about solar, renewable technology, smart grids, internet of things stuff, do you want the power company telling you how much electricity you sold back to the grid? Or would you like to have your own system telling you that? Like This is going to get much bigger than Facebook and Google monetizing your behavior online like the idea of owning your data and you selling that data to people is a really big thing and i don't think it's sort of it's not sort of being talked about widely enough yet and uh, like i don't know like we, we you talk about the pioneers and the, mm. you know the thomas edisons of the world and then this domino effect starts to happen right once somebody sees success like you mentioned uber mm-hmm. now there's the uber for healthcare, and there's the uber for mm-hmm. you know there, there's uh, one of the um, companies that was an honorable mention in i think TechCrunch. Um, was uh, this company called Pager, where mm-hmm. it's like you can Uber a doctor now and you get you know paid twenty bucks yeah. and it's just deducted from your thing. And it's a house call, and I'm like, mm-hmm. it's kind of a little house in the prairie, and, you know, in, in 2015, right? Like, yeah. You know, um, I, I, I don't know. Do you have any, any sort of perspective on the domino effect that happens mm-hmm. once the success of one happens, and then you know, the, mm-hmm. or they say how the music industry goes, so does the rest of the entertainment industry. I mean, I think things, it's never, like, life's always more complicated than that. Like, there's a lot, like, I'm glad you brought up the doctors thing, because that's a really interesting example. You've got Heal, you've got Doctors on Demand, you've got Pager, you've got a bunch of people in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, if you look at their business model, it's difficult, because doctors are not cab drivers. It's a very different equation. And 
insurance, malpractice, a, the agency problem in healthcare. There's so many variables there. And that's I think Conrad is available on, the, on one of those apps, uh, Michael Jackson's doctor. So. Oh, okay. Well, if, if any of you have back problems. That's good. Yeah. So, my it's Uber just, driver's diagnosed me a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pro, it's, you, it's were you probed by your, your uh, Uber driver? I thought that was just part of the five-star uh, <laughs> rating. <laughs> really gave me a lift there, didn't you? Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, Continue. yeah. I, mean, I digress. I, mean, I, I think there's a lot of different applications for that business model. Uber works really well. Lyft works really well. But you, you can actually buy an app for about 400 bucks now, which will just Uberfy any anything. And Uber's not the the point. The, I think the wider point is um, organizing without organizations, as Clay Shirky puts it, is this idea that you know it may not be an on-demand, like, push-a-button thing, but just the idea that workers don't necessarily have to organize in that way um, it, that that's interesting, and that's the thing that I think the courts are going to struggle with. Like that's the wider. Well, thing. It, it, there's there's theories around the idea of mm. the, the gig economy, mm-hmm. which is kind of messing up the economy, right? Because people are, you know, or the theory is that it's messed. There was rumor that Hillary yeah. Clinton was going to mm-hmm. speak on this, but this idea that people are getting more gigs. You know, if mm-hmm. I do Fiverr, then I do Lyft, and then I do Driver, and I do, uh, I'm participating in the shared economy, and then I go do do a PA gig on a film set, and mm-hmm. like I probably make. I could make $60,000 a year and be fine, but, like, how do I, you know, when taxes come into play mm-hmm. and all that good stuff, um, this idea of the gig economy, and it's, yeah. it's a huge shift. Well, yeah, it's a really progressive idea, and if you want a progressive idea to the, like that to work, you have to have equally pro- progressive government measures. So, like, when Hillary Clinton says, what about health care? For Uber drivers, it's like, okay, well, what about health care? Like, why don't we have, we, you know, we have Obamacare, it's amazing, but... It's still not exactly free healthcare, and we're still the only country in the Western world that doesn't have that. So, you, if you have some of these social safety nets, and this is me being all European and liberal now, if you have some of those social safety nets, you can have some of these more experimental things happen in the economy, and it doesn't hurt as bad if if you fail. It doesn't, or you can be an Uber driver if you've got free healthcare, and it, it's it's right. de-risked a little bit more for everything. So, I think we're going to have a lot of bigger conversations about what's the role of government if the if there's other ways to work rather than working for or starting a company of your own so uh, just an interesting point because mm-hmm. I, I even our uh, shout out to shout out to Roddy who's who's back at work after 2 weeks of paternity leave right had a baby like 2 2 weeks wow. ago and was like i got to go back to, i got to go back to work <laughs> which you, uh, you moved to the US from mm-hmm. wherever your London, accent's yeah. from mm-hmm. i couldn't I couldn't tell complacent <laughs> um but why did you make the decision to come here and not do what you know mm-hmm. do what you do uh, across the pond you know for me it was the thing about Are you a spy um, I, I can't confirm or deny that. But the thing that was interesting to me about living in the US was, so I started a business in, in the UK um, that we sold when I was 25 years old. And I did a campaign with uh, Gordon Brown, the former prime minister, to get more kids 25 and under in the UK to start businesses because there's all these grants, there's all this money for you to go and do entrepreneurial things. And 90% less kids under 25 in the UK start businesses than kids in the US where there's far fewer grants, much less help to do that. But here people believe that they can. And it's the only, I think, tangible uh, like tangible idea of the American dream is like where I grew up, the, the idea of being working class or middle class or upper class is a real thing. Like my accent uh, stop kids talking to me when I went to college. Like if you went to a posh school, you don't talk to a kid who's got an accent like mine. 
And over here, that nobody that, that doesn't exist in the same way. It, it definitely exists in pockets, and it, you know, there's definitely other problems. But the ladies love it regardless. The ladies love it regardless. So that's so say that's the ladies good. who are in here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for me, the thing about this country is th- there's just a mindset that you you can do more stuff, and I think it started to change in the UK, especially after the sort of the the Great Recession in 2008. People just couldn't get jobs; so they had to start things, and now it's, it's starting to change there, but. Nowhere else in the world is like America in that sense that you you, you you tell someone you're doing something here and they're like, oh, okay. And they start going through their mental Rolodex and figuring out if they know someone that you should talk to and, and stuff like this. My friends, my friends in the UK, never mind the people that weren't my friends, you tell someone an idea, the, the normal response was, oh, that's cool. When are you going to get a real job? Right. And you people don't do that here as much. Uh, I, I, think, I think it still happens. Like, I, mm. I think... Los Angeles is very like you probably know this just from planning TEDx, right? Like you you go to all these different venues and speak oh, to yeah. different mm-hmm. creative people, and like everybody's got an idea and they want to do stuff, and they also have day jobs. But you yes. go to you, I think you go to the rest of America, you yeah you know it's it's heightened here. You know that's um, a good point. Yeah, but like mm-hmm. I I grew up in Detroit and mm-hmm. I left a job at Chrysler to drive across the country and I was like I'm going to do stand up comedy and write. Mm-hmm. They're like really like I, I got the exact <laughs> same thing you without the accent. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, were you going to say something? Yeah, I, I just kind of going off of that, and also mm. the cultural differences. I'm thinking about the, you know the democracy, the democratization of data, mm-hmm. and uh, especially how BitTorrent has been really disruptive in a good way. Mm-hmm. But is there like cultural differences that you've noticed maybe when having been around artists that it's there's a mentality that's with you know here in the u.s to compare it in some in places in europe or anything mm. like that where it's good for some people maybe bad for others or or maybe there's like the bigger industries in certain places that are really apprehensive to around around data specifically or around just platforms like BitTorrent or yeah. even in that well it's, it's interesting so i mean BitTorrent's biggest user base is is in russia and in, in russia ideas around um, copyright, just very, very different culturally, um, and it's, it's, you know, we we would do a ton of focus groups with Bitter and stuff like that, and you talk to a Russian user, and and the, 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 you'd hear this sort of said a lot that it's like, oh well. Um, at half of 15 to 24 year old guys in Russia use BitTorrent. It's super popular there, um, and um, people would say things like. Oh well, yeah, you know, I I, I use BitTorrent to steal this movie from the Pirate Bay, but you know, I'm 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 seeding, I'm sharing it with other people as a justification for why they were using BitTorrent to steal stuff, and that was interesting to me. Like, no one in the US makes that if justification. It's more, no, no, I'm I'm using this to take Game of Thrones, but you know, sorry. Um, whereas in Russia, it's like I'm using it, but I am sharing it, so that's good. I'm contributing. The idea that sharing culture is adding value to it. Um, it, it is something in in Russia that's that's understood differently. Um, if Taiwan's a really interesting country in terms of how they feel about um, intellectual property, there the idea of only recently, only under kind of WTO laws, have, have you got um, real kind of Westernized IP laws there. But it used to be that if you had an idea um, and you you know went to like take it to market. If you didn't get it to market after, I think it's like three or five years, 
then it was public domain. It's just well, any, anybody <laughs> wow. else could do it. It's like well, you didn't you didn't make it work, so now now someone else gets a shot, or everybody else gets a shot. That's a yeah, that's a very tight window. Because I, yeah. I know even in your video you mentioned um, like if you sang Happy Birthday in public, like you're you're kind of a pirate, right? Like if, there's all these different sorts of oh yeah, the <laughs> the, inter, the copyright laws here. I mean, they're as as useful and as ignored as as um as laws on speeding um is kind of how um i think tim Wu at columbia put it like that it's like yes it's the law yes it's there for good reason yes we all break it at least once every single day kind of thing yeah like you photocopy a page from a book that's technically some form of copyright violation you forward an email you didn't write without getting permission it's a copyright violation happy birthday is absolutely right. a copyright violation so why did why did the brands that you started to, to go mm -hmm. out to um kind of going into your role you mm -hmm. know specifically in creating products for brands and like why did they jump on board you know and, and what was what was the upside for them because it's it, i think there's still a fight against piracy and yeah. you know and protection protecting ip but um, what was the, what was the advantage that you propositioned them with well i think i mean when people hear about bitter on the company they think about somebody using the pirate bay to steal game of thrones and then they download it through BitTorrent. and if you think about that equation you've got you might search for that torrent on google and you might download it from the pirate bay or another website and you use a BitTorrent download Views manager. for me, by the way. Views, right? Which we don't own. It's oh, wait. I didn't want to incriminate myself. Uh -huh. Let's, let's uh, edit that out. No, I'm just <laughs> Yeah, there's 65. It's open right. source technology. There's 65 clients. And we make clients because people use them for downloading lots of legal stuff too. Um, but if you look at all of the things like Google, Apple, all of these companies are in that equation for you to go and steal a piece of content. But it's called torrenting. It, it became a verb. Hmm. Um, and... You know, it's not really anything to do. If you look at BitTorrent, the company, I mean, they're barely focused on content at all. They're making synchronization and storage products and, you know, network congestion issues. Like it's, it's really a bunch of engineers who care about the kind of the backbone of the internet. That's the DNA of the company. And I, it, was, it was for them, it was, you know, they weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't doing anything illegal. It's kind of a pain that Hollywood mm -hmm. thinks they're the devil, but... You know, they, they, it wasn't really affecting them day to day. So then they've never really been that interested in in doing something. And, and what we did there with Bundle was really about um, actually trying to change that and do something good for artists. I would imagine at, at some point the, the studios or the labels or whomever tried to get together to kind of put an end to this, right? Did they, I, I don't know, was there some like backdoor committee that, um, and I'm making this up. Oh, no, it's more. totally frontal. I used to sit in the room with the heads of anti-piracy from all of the labels and representatives from the RAAA uh, all in the room together and probably meet once or twice a year um, and just have a discussion. Like if you looked at, if you look at Napster and Metallica, like I think that happened there was nobody talked. So... I made a point of going to talk to everybody, every label, every studio, and just get them to understand at least that look, we are we, we understand that you think we're the problem, but let let me show you what we're actually doing and the the our, our sort of where we are in this equation that you think is BitTorrent, um, and and what we're actually doing and where we're putting right. our time and money as companies, and all of the major labels ended up publishing bundles. Um, I remember once I was at the Variety Film Summit and. Um, the president of Sony Pictures Classics said that he was shocked and appalled that I was there and I should be in jail. Um, <laughs> and that, that was pretty interesting. And that was like two years ago. So wow. Sony Pictures Classics published their first bundle with us in February this year and they did a full like social campaign, tweeting it, Facebook, wow. everything, like go and get the bundle on BitTorrent. So, I mean, it was once they came around and, and, and something happened there with when the interview got hacked and 
Nobody right. would nobody would release it. We stood up and said, we'll release it. We got it. We'll do it. Um, so pe- people changed their tune. They saw what we were really doing. Well, that, I mean, that leads to an interesting point, too, because the, what I was kind of getting into was this idea that the hackers, I'll call them, in the case of Sony, mm-hmm. uh, but the pirates also, they, they seem like such a close-knit community. I'm sure, like, a lot of them know each other, like, as individuals, mm-hmm. you know, and we're, we're sharing content. I know you by your screen name or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's this underground community that seems really close-knit and well protected um, themselves. Yeah. Do you know of any of the tactics that, I don't know, or just any of the theories behind how that community kind of works with each other to keep going? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at any community like that, it's it's never about money. Um, It's usually, if anything, it's loosely about ego or reputation in some way. Um, And that's kind of it. So it doesn't it, it can exist and not. It, there's no need for it to make a profit or do anything. So it just these, these communities can just sort of persist as long as the activity is fun, right. as long as you're getting some kind of social utility from it. So um, the, the the sort of the era of CD burning, pirates uploading things to Usenet groups, all of that stuff was about reputation um, and being part of a, a wider community. And then um, there's, there was a really good article in the New Yorker and, and a book as well. I cannot remember the name of it. It just came out. Um, about this one guy in North Carolina who worked in a CD pressing plant um, who kind of broke the rules because he would he was getting all these first runs of brand new albums. This was a few years ago when brand new albums were still on CDs. Right. Um, and uploading them to Usenet groups and then they would make their way down to BitTorrent, etc. Uh, and, and he was doing that so he could get access to other all of these brand new DVDs. But then he was burning and pressing and selling pirate copies of those DVDs. And that's how they caught him. But most of the people in that community, there's like a there's a rule that you, no, you won't you won't press and sell these. You you this is just us sharing uh, sort of thing. So you, you're never going to get rid of stuff like that. And the, yeah. these are a lot of the conversations I had. But there's like rules, right? There's like you know what, honor amongst thieves, right? Like there's, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know there's there's rules to this. So um, this year mm-hmm. you were uh, elected or voted uh, the eleventh most creative person in business. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. By Fast Company. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sorry you didn't get number 10. Who's number 10? Do you know? Uh, I can't remember. I, I, Not I'm, even worth remembering. A more deserving individual than myself. No, I think you see, you should have been, you should at least made top 10. Well, the number one guy was like curing Ebola. And I'm like, there's got to be nine other people <laughs> in the world doing something more important than like fixing BitTorrent's brand image. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you never know. It's, it's a, but it's a paradigm shift. Um, but you, I mean, you have a ton of other creative endeavors. You know, you're a writer. I mean, filmmaker um kind of walk us through some of your other creative outlets because that one thing mm-hmm. i loved about what fast company wrote about you was the other creative stimuli you get you know and mm-hmm. how you have that exhibits whether it's boxing uh uh-huh. the boxing match that, uh, that was mentioned and um just i don't know just yeah. walk us through some of your other creative muses and and um yeah sure i'm doing so i just so just like okay what have i done today um so i'm i'm working on a um a kind of follow-up to my book about um, which is a fictional project um, that we're probably going to release as a Kickstarter that is, is essentially a sci-fi franchise. Um, and I wanted to explore a world where everything is free. So when the cost of solar Me energy too. goes to... It's coming. It's gonna happen. <laughs> I've got no doubt in my yeah. mind it's going to happen. When the, there's, the whole point of it, of capitalism is pushing zero marginal costs down to zero. When... When everything becomes free, when food, when energy, 3D printing efficiency gets to the point that almost everything is kind of free or nearly free, 
like we'll be able to live without having to work to get most stuff so just as capitalism sort of we're seeing like robots taking jobs and all this stuff happening because people are trying to push marginal cost to zero the cost of getting the stuff is also zero so this big bigger dilemma is coming with capitalism is what do we the economic problem we've always faced is what do you do how do you distribute goods and resources under conditions of scarcity? That's literally the definition of economics. Scarcity is no longer the conditions. The conditions with digital goods right now are conditions of abundance. You can copy anything infinitely. If if you've got enough energy for the entire world, if you can grow enough food for the entire world, if you can print and recycle stuff at close to 100% efficiency, the problem of distributing stuff under scarcity is no longer a problem that's happening in the next 50 years and shit's going to get really weird. Oh, sorry, can I? No, you can say shit okay. all you want. Okay, good. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm working on that. Um, uh, but even that, like, yeah. so, you know, I, it, yes, it's a, it's a creative outlet, but it's also um, it's a perspective on where the world is and where mm-hmm. we're headed. Uh, there's a guy, Jamin Shively, who was on the show mm-hmm. like early on. Jamin it was like a number four or five guy at Microsoft, mm-hmm. left to become a cannabis kingpin, like launched the first luxury brand of cannabis and has done some amazing things. But he has a very similar goal. But, he, you know, his, <laughs> his vision on this is through the eyes of cannabis, you know, yeah. not the intake. Well, some intake of it, but but also just like what that what he feels like that can do for the world to get us to this place where you know where it's all to use your word totally democratized, mm-hmm. um, you know. But don't we need the the friction in in the world to create or you know or what do you how do you envision this? diastopian era yeah i mean for me for me like right now the motivation is this is interesting it might happen we should discuss it we should think about it more broadly um so that's why i'm working on a project about it uh i i honestly don't know i mean when i think about it when you think about the human condition um there was a line i was talking to um young guru jay-z's dj who i'm working on another project with right now um and we were talking about this yeah guru yeah, Guru. I did. And um, <laughs> he, 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 he quoted a line in The Matrix. He's like, um, the Oracle says to, to Neo, Neo asks, well, what does this powerful person want? She says, well, all powerful people want more power. And this idea that, okay, we'll solve the economic problem, we can <clears> have <throat> enough, makes sense with physical stuff. But as human beings, like we can't ever have enough. We can't be satisfied. Or we, we haven't, a lot of us haven't learned that skill yet. Um, and and that's going to be really interesting. Like we're going to have to, I think, think more about that. That's great. Um, so when you, I don't know, for every thing that you've mm-hmm. done, right? Because there's a huge library of Matt Mason that's available out there. Um, what what else is on your wish list, right? Like how do you, mm-hmm. and, and how do you prioritize your endeavors? You know, when <laughs> right now I'm, I'm thinking about sort of two things. I'm, I'm working on stuff that's fun. Um, and I'm trying to figure out, well, okay, I, I should probably go and do something full-time at some point, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm definitely thinking about that quite seriously. Um, probably be a few more months before I, I, I figure that out. Uh, there's another thing I'm working on right now, which is really interesting, a technology called 8i, which is a virtual reality technology that you can you can essentially shoot VR. You'll be able to use it to shoot VR using two or three camera phones, which create a light field that can register depth and everything and then on the back end the the ai software 
can stitch together um, stitch together into a 3D video of a person that you could walk around and the person's talking, you go right up to them, they start crying, you can see the tears in their eyes, <laughs> the reflections. It looks amazing on the web, it looks great in VR, it looks great, it's going to be great for AR. Right. Um, but the idea they have, which I like, is they're trying to democratize VR. They're trying to make it, they're trying to build the YouTube. Of, it's, it's one of the ex-guys from YouTube and a few other Oh, people. wait, what's the company's name? 8i. Uh, okay, there's another one that I mm. came across as similar. Um, they're, they're, they've been talking about the YouTube of, of VR. Yeah, the, I mean, that's that's to me, that's going to get really, that's, that's much more, that's much sooner in, that's five years away. Um, if that, that we're going to start to see that really changing, really changing stuff. Um, but the, the idea of democratizing that stuff, because so far all I've seen is kind of, you know, a Godzilla movie on an Oculus, which is great, but that's not the point. You know, the point is, well, how does this help us to to change things and connect and connect better? But I feel like you, like you need mm-hmm. the weird creatives to get a hold of something and mm-hmm. do the, and, and bring the attention to it, right? So uh, you know, when we talked to the guy who his title was evangelist at. Um, at uh, Indiegogo, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he talks about like when Spike Lee did his crowdfunding campaign, and like people were complaining about, oh, well, doesn't he have enough money to? Mm-hmm. But what it did was bring more attention to the platform. Oh, without a doubt, yeah, no, that's that's super cool. Like getting celebrities and influencers yeah. to. I mean, one of the things I'm doing with ATI was I'm, I'm helping them. I'm helping them to sort of track down people to to spread the word on the technology um, because I, I believe in the technology. But no, you you need that. I mean, that was everything we did at Bundle. Like nothing nothing before mattered as much as when Tom York released his first record um, on BitTorrent as the first paid for bundle. That changed everything. Like celebrity matters. You need right. you need people to get attention on new technologies. Uh, have you uncovered any rules on changing perception? You know, I think when mm-hmm. you're because before you were the chief content officer at, mm-hmm. at BitTorrent, you were the head of marketing, right? Yeah. So, um, and a lot of people have a vision in their head, and I think a lot of your mm-hmm. work has been like, ah, that's not how you should do. It. You should do it this way, or this is how you should think mm-hmm. about this, and not thinking about the the way you you know yeah. you're, that you're fearful of, which is kind of how we started this conversation mm-hmm. from a place of fear of change. Um, how do you go? Like, do you have any sort of sort of communication tactics you use? Mm-hmm. To convert people and, and get them to think about the issue differently. I mean, I think it's it really comes down to you can't change someone's perception unless you understand theirs, right? If you if you go into a conversation with some someone, you see this all the time on the internet. Like this is dividing the, the country in two between sort of right and left. If you if you try and convince somebody of your opinion without really understanding theirs, you're going to entrench them further in their own opinion. And, you know, that's every flame war. That's every, like, Reddit and YouTube Relationships. Comment. It's relationships. <laughs> yeah. You I know, mean, that's like the key, like, in, in mm-hmm. arguments and relationships is like, oh, well, you're not listening. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, like, real simple life stuff. It's, like, humility. It's, like, you know, understanding how someone feels about you and, and sort of and trying to understand their perception before you even try and think about you know changing their perception so to me that's especially with sort of like human interactions where you're just talking to people that's the the most it's harder to do that on a billboard right um but but you know even there no you can if you if you can speak to someone and and get through to them about something that they really care about or that they understand or they think is a problem that they may have not considered you as being you know associating you with that problem or that solution then you can start to change people's minds yeah 
No, that's great. I mean, even you almost being threatened to be thrown in jail to mm-hmm. then we're like, no, no, I'm a cool guy. Like, here, yeah, no, it's just like I, I understood. Like he, he thought we should be in jail. There was a minute where I was like, should I was going to jail. Well, no, I was pissed at this guy. <laughs> I've had a lot of those minutes. I was just like, you know, <laughs> why am I coming and doing this when people like you have no idea who I am or, you know, my career or the devotion I've had to trying to help creative people. You're like, you should be in jail. Like there's part of you that's like, fuck you. Like, what do you mean? I should right. be in jail? Like, no, take like, him, like, I'm a human you, being you and I'm pissed off right now. Like that, that's not Yeah. Cool. And, but you got to let go of that stuff. Cause he doesn't know, you know, he hasn't, he doesn't know who I was. So it's like, okay, you think I should be in jail. I understand why you might say that given your perception of who I am. That's all good. Let's try and have a conversation about, uh, about why you feel like that. And, and, I, and I'll, I'll try and explain to you what we're trying to do. And it was that, that got us to him tweeting and being like, yeah, go get your bits on your Sony pictures. Classic. You guys should do it like a, a story core together. Like get on the stage at, at TEDx and, yeah, t- and tell a story exactly. about how you hated each other. And, and now you're, now you're drinking buddies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the show is called Innovation Crush, mm-hmm. not whatever I called it at the beginning. And the, the, the behind the truth, uh, that's my new podcast. That could be the like, Innovation Crush behind the. Truth. Be- oh yes, the subline. stamp like a little yeah. cross. We have a new like logo, that. by the way. You do? Yeah, it's wonderful. Thank you. Mm. Uh, everybody should check it out if you if you're listening. <laughs> Go look for some visuals. So um, no, the show is called Innovation Crush. I'm curious as mm-hmm. to um, anything like maybe outside of your world or within it mm-hmm. that you are personally crushing on right now. Um, I'm really crushing on a a book that came out last year by a guy called Jeremy Rifkin, who's like a futurist. Uh, called the Zero Marginal Cost Society, which is very much about this idea of everything's going to be free. Like it's just it's it's very optimistic, um, but it's uh, it's kind of articulated a lot of things in a way that I kind of hadn't because I've been thinking about right. the problems a bit. Are you going to pirate his book? And I'm, I, for I your was book? already working on this thing for like a long time, but it's really it's really, it's one of those books. Where you're like, oh, thank you! Like this is helping me make sense of stuff. Right. So he's one of my favorite authors, anyway. He's a bunch of great books: The Age of Access, The Third Industrial Revolution. He writes really incredible books. So I'm kind of like I'm crushing on that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, um, I've been I've been boxing down here with um, Shane Mosley Jr. and Fabian Madana and all these like really incredible boxers and. Uh, that's that's like a new thing for me to see yeah. people just at a different level. Hammer it out. <laughs> yeah, so those are the two things. It's like, oh my God, that's an amazing right hook and then reading an amazing verbal right hook. Uh, I, was, I was actually going to ask you what do those two things happen have in common, but you, mm-hmm. you answer your, your... So says the guy who read the Futurist book. You well, any, the answer any before good, I even ask, any ask good, the question. Any good connection is about you, you don't see it coming. Right. I think, you know, whether it's in storytelling or whether it's in a boxing ring. That's true. No. So why, why did you pick up boxing? Um, you know, I don't know. It was just I was always kind of drawn to it. Um, I did it a little bit as a kid. Because you thought you were going to jail a couple of years ago. No. Yeah. No, I picked it up. I picked it up in New York. I trained there with a guy called Eric Kelly. Um, I love Eric Kelly. He's the yeah, funniest dude ever. He's the funniest dude ever. I mean, the things he says to you when you're actually training with him. I mean, it's not even clean enough for the Internet. Like, yeah, he's amazing. He's a re- he's a good friend. Um, but he really got me into it. And it was, you know, it was weird for me. I never had a lot of discipline growing up as a kid. And boxing taught me discipline in like, like a, a way I'd never had it before. And I, I really loved that kind of later in life. It's like, oh, this is really useful, actually. Um, and also, I'm, I'm just, I'm terrible at going to the gym. It's so boring right. to like be on a treadmill or something. And But you can never stop, like, if you're intellectually 
if you're engaged with am I am I throwing a good jab or a good right, you're never going to get your jab good enough. You're never going to get your combinations good. Your footwork's always going to be, mm-hmm. there's always going to be room for improvement. So for me, boxing is very intellectually stimulating, which is, is why I've sort of kept up. With. What's interesting because like you're, what you're talking about is like a, a bit of fluidity yeah. in boxing. Like you know the technique and I think mm. that happens with creative people too. Like you kind of know the steps of solving a problem or you know coming up with a solution. But the fluidity is actually what gets you the, the helps you raise the bar on that output mm. like creative output it's like oh, like uh, most times you know <laughs> when i go into brainstorms i, mm-hmm. ca- I kind of don't prep you yeah. know i may i may look at a couple of different things but then I, like because i want i want to be surprised by something in the moment right mm-hmm. if i'm like if you over prepare which is what happens in the body like you get knocked out right, yeah, right. And, absolutely and, uh, that could definitely happen um sir uh your innovation crush what are you crushing on Besides your oh god, um. God is a great crush to have. <laughs> no, no, he she is amazing. <laughs> he or she, or it. Um, <laughs> uh, I've definitely been taking a look at a lot of uh, VR AR um, in the, and I would love your opinion on this too. Is I feel that yeah. VR is very much a kind of like the Wild West. It, Absolutely, everyone's just yeah. running to it. It's kind of like even a gold rush that. Um, like people want to do it, but mm-hmm. they don't know how to do it. And I feel like there's even some people who are just doing it for the sake of VR and it's yeah. kind of doing a disservice to it. Well, I think there's no better example of that than what happened with the first incarnation of Google Glass. Like it was it was AR for AR's sake. And they're just culturally like living in San Francisco and seeing that, like how people reacted to techies walking around with this thing on their face, like in neighborhoods like the mission where there's so much economic turmoil because of the tech industry. It just became this like focal point of people's resentment, and there was no the reason, glass holes. Exactly the whole <laughs> glass hole thing, and there was the reason for that was there was no upside. Like no one ever resented people. No one ever resented IBM when they had a computer as big as a room. No one resented the first guy who told you about the internet because that was cool. Um, there's a company down here called Dacry. Um, they're an augmented reality company. And they're making hard hats for longshore crane operators and people who work on oil rigs and first responders. That's a really cool application of AR. And I think that's where this stuff needs to start. Like, I don't need to see a glass hole walking around the mission, like video blogging without, you know, like taking my picture without my permission or whatever. That's going to upset people. It doesn't really add a lot. But if an EMT gets out of a gets out of the ambulance and they're on the line to a doctor and they help them save someone because they're like do this do that do that oh my god i can see this person's temperature is way up you need to give them this like the things that you can do with ar on the super technical side are really really cool and i and i think daiquiri's getting it right because i feel like we kind of need to start there with that stuff you, I was just going to say, I, I had Google Glass at uh, one point, mm. and immediately after picking it up in Venice. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was walking down the street on Abbott Kinney, and I was, mm-hmm. uh, four people told me to, to F off. Yeah. Um, just walking down the street and actually picked it up from a colleague of yours. I mean, it's like it's like driving a Hummer. It's like a really divisive thing. And yes. technology shouldn't be – when technology gets in that place – it's you, you got to ask yourself, are you doing the right thing? Is this the right approach? Right. And we were using it to actually test it out because I interview speakers a lot of times. And the idea is like, well, if I have this, mm-hmm. if I can wear this and talk to you and be looking in your eye and not have you maybe looking at another camera offside, makes that's sense. Yeah. really useful. Mm-hmm. But just that first 15 minutes of having Google Glass and just being, 
Wow. Well, it's also like you know, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit is this idea of transition, right? It, mm. You know, it's not that people don't like change; they don't like transition. You know, because I remember when you when you brought up the whole phone thing or mm-hmm. the taking your picture in public. Mm. It's like now when I see somebody break out a camera phone, I like I, I don't care. Yeah. But sure. it, there was a period of time when I, I was like, uh, let me cover you know cover my eyes or turn the other way mm-hmm. or like, what does this dude? Why does he got to take pictures? Or you know, it what? But then it becomes norm and it's it, like it's yeah. okay. One of my examples of that of, you know uh, is, of that is also. Uh, self checkouts at grocery mm-hmm. stores, and I was like, well, "Why would I want to bag my own groceries?" Until that one time, I was in a hurry and I actually needed it, and I was like, "Wow, that was really convenient, <laughs> right?" It was yeah. the the I was resistant to the new the change, mm-hmm. but then and, until it became relevant for me. Um, yeah, for sure. It, there's definitely, I mean, yeah, there's like that whole kind of thing that goes on. You seem very uh, passionate about I don't know, kind of like empowerment and. Equalization. I'll use that word. Um, mm-hmm. Why? Like, why? Where was that instilled in you? I think it goes back to pirate radio. I think it's this idea that growing up in a society where I, you sort of feel like you can do certain things, but not other things, and it's really part of society. And certain stratas of society can do these things, but others can't do those things. Or you have permission to do this and not this. And then being part of a community and an ecosystem where it's like. No, no, you can try anything you want here and it may or may not, like you, the weirdest music possible may or may not work and that's where you get all these genres of electronic music that come out of London right. every like three, four years is because weird is better and nothing's off limits and you can you can get your stuff to those DJs. It's still there, like in the era of the internet, it's still about 150 of those stations in London and to me that just incubated this idea that that's a good way to foster innovation like to not have silos and not have dogma and stuff get in the way and and i and just i've seen that in so many instances and organizations and cultures where one variation or other of just not having permission socially will stop people from doing things right um complete this phrase for me you ready Mm -hmm. (laughs) innovation to me is innovation to me is empowerment that's great. All right. Um, any any final questions, Eric? I no. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I no, uh, no. You know, you know the bad part about doing these things is like, oh, I should have asked him this. Like a you know, right. a day later, I'm like, oh, I should have, or I listen to it and go, ah. Yeah. But that this is great. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks yeah. for coming. Uh, really this is uh, fantastic. A super mm-hmm. different conversation than what we've had in other episodes. Everyone, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush. I'd like to thank you. By the way, where can people find you on the interwebs aside from uh, Fast Company where you have my vote for number nine or eight next, yeah, next year? Yeah, great. Um, uh, probably best place is Twitter. It's just at Matt Mason. Wow, you got, the, uh, you got Matt Mason. That's great. So, uh, everybody, we will talk to you next time. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it. On the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleichinger, Schleichinger, I've been friends with her for 10 years, one of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash wait for it comedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore. 
because it's here and it's funny and I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudin posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.